Praise God. We'd like to welcome everyone here today. If you're a guest, I'm not sure if there are any. I haven't seen any, but if you are a guest and I missed you, we're so glad you're here today. We welcome you. Amen. If you're watching us on theantioch.com, we welcome you to this broadcast. I forgot to mention, Sister Bundy reminded me, if you could lift up, some of you will know this name, if you could lift up uh, Sister Juanita Little and their, her family. Some of you remember Chris Green. He went, you know, graduated here from our school when we had a school. His mother, or Sister Little's daughter, passed away suddenly uh, this week. Sister Bundy, do you remember how, you know how old she was? 54 she was young and uh so let's we're gonna we're, we need to lift up that family in prayer amen praise god if you're not standing if you would stand just for a moment as we read from proverbs chapter 24 very familiar portion of scripture quoted many many times proverbs 24 and verse number 16 for a just man falleth seven times and riseth up again, but the wicked shall fall into mischief. God bless you. You can be seated. Just for a moment today, as the Lord leads us, I want to minister from this thought, and you won't understand what it means to a little later, but one white stone. One white stone. The Bible mentioned this before, said this before, but the Bible is, is quite remarkable from the standpoint that if you and I, from our viewpoint, our understanding, would pin a book about certain things as the Bible was, that, that we, we would attempt, or at least most of us would attempt to paint the prettiest picture that we possibly could. If, if, we, if, if we were going to recount certain things about our lives, most of us, when we recount our lives, we, 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 we focus on the details and we skip over the rough patches. My wife recently found a movie she liked and, and she really, really, really enjoyed it. And so I was giving her a hard time because she went back through the movie it was a romantic movie, and she really liked it. And she went back through the movie, and she was watching it again. And, and uh, she, the second time, the third time, the fourth time she watched it, she skipped all the good parts. She, she skipped to the first kiss and to the great ending and all that. I said, well, that's kind of crazy. I said, because it's all those bad places in the movie where they got mad at each other, they walked away, I don't want to see you again, I don't love you anymore. That's what makes all the good things worth it. And so we have a tendency in our lives to recount the, the good times and really try to forget the bad times. That's why I, I, I'm not here to get on a soapbox. I, I'm, I'm personally not on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, any other social media. It's not because I have anything against it. I just... At my point in life, I don't need another thing to have to check or recheck. or, and, and I don't really think you care what I had for lunch or dinner or where I am, just my personal opinion. And so we do that. But the problem with a lot of that stuff is very rarely do people want to share their bad times. They only share the good times. So if you and I go in there, we read, it seems like everybody is living it up. 
I mean, it's like everybody is having the time of their life. People are posting pictures. They never post pictures of them crying at night, depressed. I've never seen, maybe there are some, but very rarely do you see someone take a selfie of them teared up, eyes swollen, and post, I'm very depressed today and I don't want to get out of bed. It's always this big smile. Life is great. Look at me. I'm in my car driving 60 miles an hour, but boom, I can take a picture. And so the problem with that is, is that we get caught up in the fact that, man, everybody is living it up and I'm the only one going through anything. Have you ever, and I'm a, I, you ever, you ever watched a preview and got really excited about the movie? And then sat down and wasted an hour and a half of your life only to realize that all the good parts of the movie were the preview. <laughs> Seriously. You got all excited. You got that two-minute preview. Man, this is going to be a great movie. You sit down and you realize that hour and a half was condensed into two minutes because that's all they had of good material. And so if you and I were going to write the, the Bible, I would focus on a lot of the good stuff. I would focus on, on I would eliminate the bad and really, I would make this the, 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 this as, as cheerful and happy and, and just an absolute, amazingly uplifting, great book. And it is. But the remarkable thing about the Bible is there seems to be a theme that runs throughout the Bible where God doesn't hide the bad places. I, I've had, you know, it, it, when you come in contact with new believers or people that are, are just beginning to try to discover the Bible for themselves and you begin to, to talk to them and they begin to read the Bible, especially begin to read the Old Testament, they begin to have questions and a lot of times they have questions of why is all this bad stuff in the Bible? I mean, if God's this and God's that, why is all this junk in the Bible? And when you think about it, you, you, take, you take some of the the high-profile names of the Bible, the names that, that even non-believers would, would recognize, like you, you take Abraham or you take maybe a David or you take others like that, that, that their name is, is very recognizable and, and you look at them, but then you realize all the stuff in their life that God didn't hide. I, I mean, you think about a man like Abraham, the patriarch, and you think about all the things in his life that that uh, that God didn't hide. He could have easily just skipped over some of those things and just and just kind of circumnavigated that in in the pinning of of of, of the Old Testament and, and kind of eliminated that. And only showed you the, the 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 remarkable things that Abraham did, but but he chose to allow you to see the other side. And why 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 now, three four five thousand years, two thousand years, depending on what part of the Bible that you're reading. Why is that important to you and I that, that God would allow all of that to stay in his book? It's been mentioned before and said again, you think about that is a huge chunk of history, thousands of years, and here is God, the creator of everything, is going to condense every piece of knowledge he can that he feels like is vital to you and I. He's going to condense that down and, and, and it's condensed.
condensed into 66 books that make up the Bible, and he condenses it down. That tells me and you that if God put it in there, it must be important. It wasn't like he didn't have any material to go through, and he had some filler. And so he's trying to think, well, you know, See, Genesis, I know what I want to write there. Exodus, Leviticus. I don't really know how to go from Leviticus to Deuteronomy. Let me throw numbers in there and just give you a bunch of names you can't pronounce because I don't really know what else to say. No, it all all is is put in there for a purpose, for, for, for the understanding and him showing us who he is and his nature. That's why the Bible is so remarkable as a book because the Bible is not a book based off of simple facts. But the Bible shows us the nature of the living God. The, 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 the who the living God is because the Bible is not stuck in the period in which it was written. There are not a, there are, there, there aren't a lot of books that you can go back to and read that were written a thousand years ago or fifteen hundred years ago, and you can really and, and have a lot of meaning to today's world. You can read them, but they don't have a lot of trans transliteration or whatever the word is to get from that world into this world. But the Bible is remarkable in the fact that it's just as relatable to us now as it was to them two thousand years ago when they stood with scrolls and paper. Scrolls and opened up and read out loud the Bible. It has the same kind of relatability now as it did then. That's remarkable. And the thing about the Bible that that's all my wife and I were talking about this last night. The thing that's remarkable about the Bible is the Bible is not a book based off of your intellectual prowess, that your ability to piece things together. The Bible says that the Spirit shall guide us into all truth. The Bible is not a book of simple understanding, but a book of revelation. Because there are a lot of things and concepts in the Bible to the natural mind. The Bible says to the, to the, to the carnal mind, the natural mind, the things of the Spirit are foolish. There's a lot of things that we're doing here today that really are silly. I know we're sophisticated now. We're, we're, we've been around for a while. We don't think about it. But let's be honest. There's a room here filled with a couple of hundred people that are closing their eyes and mumbling something to this invisible thing that's supposed to be in here that no one's ever seen, but he's here somewhere. And we're believing that we're going to go to this place that's out there somewhere. When we all die, we're all going to go out there. And if you don't go there, you're going to go to this other. That Anyone ever been there? No, but we know it's there. And you think about it, it's silly from that standpoint. I mean, you think about it from a, from a, from a 2 plus 2 equals 4 standpoint. Prayer is goofy. You close your eyes and you talk out loud to somebody that's not there. They lock people up for stuff like that. They give medication to people who do that. But you and I do it, we think of no big deal. But when you stop a minute, you think, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. But God was so masterful, masterful in how he 
penned the Bible and penned his word. And from Genesis all the way to Revelation and how it's all fit together and, 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 and perfectly, perfectly complementary one another. But the, but the thing that's awesome to me is the fact that, that he shared with you and I some insight into lives of people that were used and great, great people but had a lot of messed up flaws. I mean, people that were, that were historically changed, absolutely, absolutely icons of not just biblical history, but regular history. Just incredible Mount Rushmore type people, but yet had some really messed up lives because my this is me speaking you may have a different perspective but i thought why would god do that why would god put that in there because let's be honest we live under the pressure and the assumption that we are supposed to be this superior group of people that live above everything that ever have a bad thought that always walk around in our in our in our christian pristine perfection but god put all that let's just call it what it is junk the murders the adulteries the fornications the incest all kinds of just craziness in the bible that shows you and me, one thing, that God really is not worried about your mistakes. That God doesn't fret about your mistakes. And then he goes farther to say that a just man falls seven times. That in of itself right there is an oxymoron. Because in our world, a just man would never fall. That's how I would write that. I would say a just man never falls. A wicked man falls seven times. That's how I would write that. Because I equate just or righteous, that's that word just, means righteous, I would equate that righteousness to perfection or not making mistakes. But he doesn't even equate righteousness and, and, and falling. So you know what that means? That means falling isn't failing. <laughs> if you don't hear anything I say today, just remember that word. Falling isn't failing. God's not worried about the falling. And you notice, notice this, I never looked at it this way. Never looked at it this way. Maybe, it's just maybe my little pea brain at work here. I saw this this morning, and I was, I was pasting that verse onto my, onto my notes, and I saw it, I've, I've read that, I heard that verse a million times, I've read it a million times. I mean, they have that, and you go to the Christian bookshop, you can buy that on pictures, and on coffee mugs, on pens, on everything. You can buy that verse, it's a very, very quotable verse. 
the righteous man falls seven times. And I thought about that. And all of a sudden, I pasted in it, and I saw this. The number seven. What do we com- equate the number seven to? God's number. Six, 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 bad number. What, seven? That's God's number, right? Seven, the number of complete. Seven, seven, seven. And he put his number in that verse. He could have picked any number. The righteous man falls a thousand times. But he said that to you and I. Because in this room right now, there are so many of you that are caught up and on the mistakes and failures that you have made. And because of the mistakes and failures you have made, you have disqualified yourself from going farther than you are because you feel like I've made a mistake or done too many things to go beyond where I'm at. So I might as well just try to stay where I am and survive where I'm at because that's all I'm good at. No! Your mistakes don't intimidate God. Your failures don't don't send him into depression. Because he said even the most righteous are automatically got things in them. They're going to fall. And he said falling. Notice falling. He didn't say failing. So what does that prove to me? I know you've heard this before. I'm not giving you anything you don't know. What is failing? If falling isn't failing, then what's failing? Failing isn't falling. Failing is not getting back up again. We stay down in our situation or our mistake because we think the mistake is failure. But the mistake isn't failure at all. Staying in the mistake is the failure. Because the Bible says in Micah chapter 7, it said, Rejoice not against me, O my enemies, for when I fall, I shall arise. So, The difference between us who live overcomers and those who live as failures is the fact that overcomers automatically know I'm going to fall, but it's already built back into me. I'm getting up again. It's already a far gone conclusion that that's going to take place because throughout all of the Bible, we find time and time again a failure after failure after failure after failure. Fall, 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 fall. But every situation, we find that the falling wasn't the problem. It's what you do when you fall. Revelation chapter 2 is a very... The book of Revelation can be very intimidating to read. It, it, it can be... It can be... It's very prophetic. It's very... Uh, it's got a lot of... Uh, of... of, uh, of Imagery in it that, that seems a bit far out, seven horns, seven beasts, all kinds of craziness. And so sometimes we, we steer away from it. But there's some really awesome truths in the book of Revelation that, that aren't just apocalyptic in nature, uh, that, that aren't, 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 aren't cryptic. There are some really amazing things. But there's one verse in chapter 2 of Revelation uh, we usually quote the beginning of that verse, but we, we very rarely go to the end of that verse. And the, 
And the verse is verse 17. It says, he who has an ear, I'm reading out of the New King James. It says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. This hit me the other day. And, and this is not where we're going, but just throwing this out there for those of you. Is that Peter reached up and cut the ear off the high, uh, off the high priest's guard. He cut the ear off. And the ear fell into the ground, into the dust. You're not care- if we're not careful, we can allow our ear, our hearing ear, ear of the spirit, to be cut off. And when, it, when we allow it to get cut off, it falls into the dust. The dust represents the flesh. And what we could hear so clearly from God We allow our ear to be taken from us and now we don't understand or hear things clearly anymore. Some of us struggle so much with with direction and everything because we've lost that ability to hear God's voice. Here's direction. And so it says, he who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit's saying to the churches. And then it says, very, very strange, somewhat cryptic, but it says, to him who overcomes... I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And then it says this, I will give him a white stone and on that stone a new name which no one knows except him who receives it. Now let's be honest. Most of us read the Bible for either some kind of daily uh, 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 practice of reading the Bible. but Most of us never stop long enough to really know what's being said there. And so we read that and hidden manna, well manna, that was back in the Israelites in the wilderness. They were going around and remember they had manna. And then it says, I'll give him a white stone. I really don't know what that means, a stone. What is a good as a stone and a name that you don't know, but everyone knows and you only know and no one knows. And all of a sudden we go over that and we miss the power of what he's saying there. Because if you begin to read or, or begin to peel back the layers of what that meant, Even scholars somewhat debate exactly what was being said there because we understand the hidden manna. We understand what manna represented. It it represented the, the daily, the daily portion of food that was given to the Israelites in the wilderness as they wandered around and they woke up every morning and there was fresh manna on the ground and they used that to sustain themselves. And so we understand that, that manna and the hidden manna. We understand a little bit of what that means, but but scholars debate on exactly what, what it means. But there, there are three main kind of ideas of what that means. And I like all three of them. You can pick which one you like. I prefer, I don't know which one is the most correct, but all three of them sound good to me. The first one says this, that, that the, 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 uh, the, the idea of the white stone is this, that, that at a trial in Greek society... Greek culture, that on a trial, that when the verdict would come down, that they would cast a dark stone for the guilty, but a white stone for the acquitted or the innocent. And so when he says, I will give him a white stone, he says, I am going to erase everything that you've ever done that you consider to be against you. I'll make sure I cover it up. The second interpretation is is that there are certain 
banquets, especially those of high society, that in order to get into that banquet, you had to have a white stone. And these stones were given to those that were the invited guests that you couldn't get into there without a white stone. But the third one is the one I like the best. And the third one is simply this, that a man on his way home from work, as he approached his house outside of his home, there was a large urn that sat just outside of his house. And on his way home, he looked down at the ground and somewhere along his journey, he would find either a white stone or a dark stone. And when he got home, depending on his day, if he had a bad day, he'd take the dark stone, he'd drop it into the urn to represent a bad day. If he had a good day, he'd pick up a white stone. And when he got home, he'd take that white stone and he would drop it in the urn. And at the end of his life, when he died, the family would gather around. This was specially practiced in the city of Thrace. They would gather around and they would break open the urn. And they would count the stones in the urn. And the idea was that if you had just one more white stone than a dark stone you had a successful life. If you had just one more good day than you had a bad day, you were considered to be a successful person. And Jesus, speaking to John through vision and revelation, says, I will give him a white stone. And a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. You know what that means, the second part? This is my interpretation of what that means, the second part. That he'll get a new name written, which no one knows except him receives it. Not only is he saying, listen, if you will continue to walk with me, I'm not worried about how many times you fall. I'm only concerned about how many times you get up. And as long as you get up one more time than you fall, you're living an overcoming life. But he said, I'm going to go a step farther. I'm going to give you a new name. And on that name, you're the one that's going to know it. No one else is going to know it. You know what that means to me? Is the fact that not only is he going to make sure that I'm an overcomer, but on the other side of that, he's going to take away all the mistakes and keep the hidden things hidden. God only reveals things out of mercy. It's God's desire to keep things hidden. Thank God. Thank God. And he said, listen, only you are truly going to know where I brought you from. Only you sitting in this room really know 
the full story. I may share with you the highlights. I may share with you the cliff notes. But I'm not letting you totally all the way into the deep depths of the story. Because only I know where God truly brought me from. Only I know the true dark places inside of me that he saved me from. Only I truly know what was going on up here in the, in the junk and the mess that was inside of me. And thankfully, when I came to him, he said, I'm going to take all that away. I'm not going to reveal it. I'm not going to tell everybody about it. I'm not going to put your business out there. In fact, I'm going to take it. I'm going to wash it all away. I'm going to give you a new name. It's all going to be there, done, over with. But the fact of the matter is today, there are some of you that are so so overwhelmed by mistakes or things you've done and you're living in those mistakes and you can't overcome those mistakes. But I'm here to say there's a white stone for you today that says, listen, you may have had a mistake. You may have fallen, but falling isn't failing. The fact of the matter is rejoice not against me, oh, my enemies, because I'm going to fall. But in the falling, I'm getting up to say, listen, greater is he that is in me. Oh, I know I'm not preaching to everybody, but there's somebody who needs to hear me today. Maybe someone that's watching on the internet or that's going to watch that, that you're letting the devil beat you up and say it's over. You might as well quit. You might as well throw in the towel. You've made a mistake. You've fallen down. But it's not that. The falling is not the problem because God's grace is sufficient. The fact of the matter is I may be down, but I'm not going to stay down. not going to let the fall define me if i would if i would hear today I, I try to look this up i didn't have time to fully look it up but if i would read to you and i would say to you this and i'm just going to take a guess i don't know what the what the correct total would be it's just a guess i may be way off but if i said to you this person I'm talking about missed over 50,000 shots during their career playing basketball. They missed over 50,000 shots. And they, they had a turnover. A turnover is when you, when you give the ball away to your opponent off a mistake. And they probably had several thousand turnovers during their career. They probably had... Thousands of fouls that they committed over their career. Countless, thousands of missed layups, thousands of missed jump shots. And if I just told you that, you would maybe say, well, that person didn't sound like they were very good. That person didn't feel like they were very successful. But then if I told you the name of that person, you would automatically know that wasn't a, a bad person at all. That wasn't a very that wasn't a that wasn't a a, 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 a bad player at all. Because if you go read the stats of Michael Jordan, it's filled with missed shots, fouls, turnovers, bad games. But you know what? It wasn't the missed shots that defined a career. You've heard it said before, there was a poster somewhere that talked about how many times 
for a game-winning jump shot that he shot but missed. If you go back and you watch a highlight, go get a DVD or YouTube and type in highlights of Michael Jordan, they're not going to show you all the missed shots. Michael Jordan, bang, clang, boing. They're going to show you all the, the dunks and the, and the tongue wagging and the perfect shots and the, and the game-winning shots to win the championship. And all of a sudden you think, man, that's a great... But he had a lot of falling in that. The fact of the matter is, folks, you're never going to get to the point where you eliminate falling. So you know what that tells me? God's not stressed and worried about my falls. The only thing God's worried about is what I'm going to do when I fall. Would you stand? We are conditioned to worry about what we do. We're worried about, you know, and so we put so much pressure. And, and that's, that's kind of, that's, that's religion. Because religion tries to produce perfection. But how can the imperfect be perfect on their own? And so you think about it, you put the pieces together. The Bible says that, we're, that the righteous will be saved, right? Scarcely saved, but they're saved, right? They may sneak in there, but they're saved. So the righteous are saved. The righteous will be saved, but the righteous fall. So that proves that even my falling is not attached to my salvation. Now, now before you run out of here and go crazy, because I'm preaching, there's no such thing as... Back it up a little bit, okay? I hear someone now, look, we can do whatever we want. He said it doesn't matter. Woo! Break it out today. <laughs> There's a party at my place tonight. It's all free. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that my salvation is not tied to my falling. My salvation is tied simply to to getting up again. And if you let your falling, I notice this, I'm trying to be careful in saying this, not to be oratorical, but in understanding what I'm trying to say, I'm not saying failing, I'm saying you're falling. Falling's not failing. But if you're going to let your falling define you, you will become a failure. You're not a failure because you fall. You're a failure because you allow your fall to define you. Because righteousness is not predicated upon perfection. So if the righteous are made perfect and innocent because they're given the robe of righteousness, because how can the unrighteous become righteous unless they're given righteousness, right? We can go through that study today, but not without the time. So we, are, we become righteous because righteousness is a gift, right? When you receive the Holy Ghost, the Bible says righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. So righteousness is a gift. It's given to us. 
But righteousness isn't predicated upon perfection. Because if I try to be perfect to be righteous, I'm saying to God, I don't need your righteousness. I'm going to try to produce my own righteousness. That's religion. But true biblical Christianity is embracing my fallings to accept his righteousness. To know it's not about spending time trying to become perfect, but it's spending time to make sure that when I fall, I'm getting up again. Because ultimately, in the end, it's not counted how many times that you fall. It's simply counted who's standing at the end. I'm just going to put it this way as I close. The Bible says the righteous scarcely are saved. I don't know what the word scarcely is. I've studied before. I don't remember what it is. But I'm just going to throw it out there. Scarcely. Let's just change it. The righteous who are standing will be saved. Because righteousness is equated simply to the fact of those who are standing, not those who have never fallen. Father, you are so gracious and so kind to us. And God, your grace and your mercy are so overwhelming to us sometimes because you give them to us so freely, so readily. And I ask today in your name that there are those in this place today that have allowed some fallings in their life to define them. And because of that, they have they've separated themselves from you because they feel like their falling has become a failing. But Lord, I pray today that you would give each one of us fresh revelation in this place to know that you've put within us the spirit of a conqueror to stand up, to get back up. To know that it's not the falling that you're worried about because that's why you went to the cross. Because the falling is not what you're concerned about. It's the fact that what we do when we fall. Lord, I pray right now that you would give each one of us in this place a fresh revelation of who you are. The fresh revelation of your kindness, your long-suffering, your patience. Of who you are and your love for us. You said that you, were, that you, were, you have good thoughts for us. Not thoughts of evil, but thoughts of love. God, let us see that in this place today. Let us not see you as a cop or a judge who is waiting there to, to arrest us or to condemn us, but you're really there as a loving Savior to pick us up, to clean us off, to brush us off, to put us back on our feet again. I pray in the name of Jesus, Lord, that we would see you like that. Because that's your nature. That's who you are. You're a God of love. You're a God of patience. You're a God of kindness. You're a God of grace and mercy. I pray all these things. Let them be in your name. In Jesus' name.
Praise God. Amen. Why don't you take a moment, shake somebody's hand before you leave, greet them, introduce yourself. If you don't know them, tell them your name, tell them a fake name, give them a name. God bless you. Don't forget church tonight, 6 o'clock. Amen.